0: Well, welcome back to the Fatal Conceits Podcast, a show about money, markets, mobs, and manias. If you're joining us for the first time, or even if you're a regular listener, please do head over to our Substack at bonner research.substack.com. There you'll be able to check out hundreds of irreverent essays on everything from lowly politics to high finance. And beyond, plus a bunch of research reports. And of course, many more episodes of the Fatal Conceits podcast, just like this one, uh, not a few of which feature my guest today, uh, a popular guest on the show and a good friend of mine. Christopher Mayer is the portfolio manager and co founder of the Woodlock House Family Capital Fund. And he joins me today. Chris, good to see you, mate. How are you doing? Yo, good to be <laughs> on with you, buddy. How are you doing? Good mate, always, always good to have a brighten up my day with a chat with you, mate. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Same. Looking forward to it. Now, uh, readers and I guess listeners now who have heard a few of our previous discussions know that one of the themes that we uh, that we touch on with Chris, as a, a an increasingly rare omnivorous reader, is we like to thumb through some of the spines on his bookshelf, see what's yep. got his uh, his grey matter ticking and inspired. Uh, we've had, I think, maybe three or four of these discussions now and we've sort of set them up with um, a few different categories of book, whether it be philosophy or travel or fiction or, or what have. But you had a bit of a different idea uh, today, Chris, and uh, thanks to your recommendation, I've done a little bit of a, a two-day crash course on uh, your <laughs> selected author and it's turned up some very, very interesting points. So maybe we can... Uh, we can get right into uh neil postman and his seminal 1985 work it's quite amazing to think that this was that long ago titled amusing ourselves to death with the very appropriate uh sub um, subtitle of public discourse in the age of show business Uh, chris you want to set the stage for us yeah so i i kind of put this under the category of uh understanding
1: media so if you want to, or understanding media culture so if you want uh, to have some a framework to make sense of social media and uh tv news and um, all the stuff that goes on this this is this book will really make you think yeah what i think about is it's eerily pres- prescient so yeah you said it, it came, came out in 1985 and it's hard to believe that that um Here's the copy. I'm going to read just the beginning because this sets up the whole book. There's a little part in the beginning where he compares uh, the dystopian vision, Orwell, 1984, and Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. So it's just one little paragraph. I'm going to read it because this is when he says so himself, what this book's about. So it says, uh, uh, Orwell feared, uh, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book because there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to pacificity and ego, to egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we'd become a trivial culture, preoccupied. With the equivalent of you know nonsense so he goes on to say here that uh, this book is about the possibility that huxley and not orwell was right mm. uh, i mean already just in there there's a lot you could you know already already sense which is uh you know we're bombarded with so much information that uh it almost makes everything uh trivial i mean that you're bombarded with so much news and and takes all the time it's uh mm-hmm. uh it, it's hard to make sense at all so i would say like the, the if i had to sum up kind of the key thrust of this book and what one of the main things i learned about and we could talk more about it is uh postman really makes you think more about the medium itself uh, rather than focusing so much on what is being said but he would say for example instead of the content of a tweet that gets passed around a lot. He would make you think about, well, what does that medium of Twitter uh, bring? What what does it, what does it, what kind of conversations does it force us to have or encourage us to have? I remember one example in the book he gives is like, think about, you know, smoke signals. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if you're only communicating by smoke signal, it it limits the kind of conversations you can have. You can't have a deep philosophical discussion over smoke signals, you know? Mm. And, it, and so if you think of every medium that way, you think of Twitter as a medium, it constrains you in a certain way. There's the obvious character limitation, but there's the whole thing about it. There's the likes, there's the retweets, there's followers. And what does that, what kind of conversations does that force you to have? What sort of messages does it force you to have? And so that's the thing about this book that really makes you, makes you think about. It.
0: That's a really interesting um, and very germane point as twitter and of course Elon Musk uh and that that whole kind of uh potential takeover and and the debate on whether or not one man should control this this uh this particular medium and just the power of that medium and the power that it has accrued uh in you know just a very very short amount of time uh one of the the points that i saw postman make in An interview, and this was in '95. So this was ten years after uh, the publication of this uh, particular book, "Amusing Ourselves to Death." So it was really kind of, as you mentioned, I think the right word is eerily prescient, because even the terminology that he's using seems it it almost looked like he had he had uh, you know taken stock of the conversation today and then transported himself back to '95 just to give us a bit of a warning about what was what was ahead. But he gave. I remember he, he used this point about this um, technology always being, particularly communications technology, being this Faustian bargain, where it wasn't just this one-way cornucopia of you know benevolent gifting that that we were the receivers of, but we also had to give something uh, in return for that. And a few of the points that he brought up, for example, was um, you know just basic social skills. When we're we've got our head in a personalized computer and we're not building a community, uh, how does that? How does the medium change the way that we interact with one another beyond just the way that we interact individually with information? Uh, and I think to your point about Twitter, that's I mean that's just such an obvious thing that we can that we can point to and say, well, there's obvious echo chambers here where people and whole communities are becoming just more and more uh, fragmented and atomized. Yeah. And I think, do, do you think that, that, uh, that, that is somehow catalyzing the kind of political divide that we see
1: yeah, today? Yeah, or? definitely
0: do. I mean, you think about people can
1: build their own little echo chambers. Now you can only, you can tailor all your input so that you're only getting kind of the stories that you want to hear, you know? Um, so it definitely is fragmenting that way. And, you know, I think the po- also the point about new technologies and new mediums that he makes is that it's not like people tend to think, well, let's say for example, when an email came along and people tend to say, well, it's just another way to send a letter. But it wasn't, it's not that at all. It's a completely mm-hmm. new thing and it changes everything that went on before. Nobody writes letters anymore. You know, right. and it's <laughs> like when TV came along and people, you know, might in the beginning, they would have, you know, depreciated its, uh, or downplayed its potential, its influence, because for them, they just saw it as what they were familiar with. And as an extension of that, rather than something that really was brand new and changed the game, even though they didn't fully understand it, you know, they didn't fully understand what television would do to like Mm -hmm. politics, you know, it changed. And one of the interesting things, I don't know, I don't think it's in this book. I think it's, in another book, Technopoly. He talks about the Lincoln Douglas debates, Okay. And they would go on for like eight hours. You know, they'd go on for hours, <laughs> right? And they didn't have television. They were, they were there. It was like an event. You'd sit and then have intermissions and the other guy would talk and they have an hour and then you'd have an hour to respond or whatever it was. It was like, but you know, we have TV now. What does TV do? You know, it compresses it, makes it entertainment. We have commercials. And now you have guys, you know, we do these debates and they have two minutes to respond. It's ridiculous. You know, yeah, what's sound your bites. A solution to the Middle East?
0: You got two <laughs> minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Be concise. Try and keep it snappy. Right. <laughs> And also, I think, yeah. uh, to your point there about this, uh, participating in person in communal activities, uh, Postman refers to it as the co-presence of communications, where you are literally, you know, I mean, you and I are talking uh, over Skype here for just kind of want of, uh, <laughs> of geographical yeah. closeness, but there is there is something radically different from, yeah. let's say, attending um we were at the theater down here uh, just last week with my wife's dad who was uh, visiting in town and we, we took him along to a show. Um, we saw Giselle and it's, it, I mean, it's an incredibly different experience when you go to Teatro Colón down here. It's a packed house. People are there, you know, they're clapping in unison. Um, you know, it's very, very different from, we we took my seven-year-old daughter along and she'd seen a few of, you know, she'd seen some performances on the television before, but this was just a whole... A whole yeah. other world and so it makes me think given just the past couple of years and how uh you know these kind of rolling lockdowns and interruptions to global travel and just the kind of almost the wholesale cancellation of the public space how yeah. that might have affected the way that we digest our information uh, i don't think we've really uh, fully
1: understood fully understand it yet you know that's the other thing is like you know even social media been around a while now but i don't Mm -hmm. know yet that we fully appreciate and understand it you know what its impacts are and how it's changing things just like it took decades before people really figured out tv and how to use it and what its effects were and i may it may take some time and this creates whole new concepts i mean there's one other part in the book i like where he talks about there are many examples of this kind of thing but he talks about how uh you know even the concept of news of the day you know uh it didn't exist unless you had a medium that you could, you know, see what was going on in, in faraway places. And it made me think that, uh, you know, that's one of the other things about Twitter. Here's the line I like. He says, the news of today is a figment of our technological imagination. <laughs> <I> and <mean, laughs> one of the things about not just Twitter, but any kind of social media or the Internet generally is you can instantly see what's going on all the way across the world. And everyone's got to right, right away have an opinion. I mean, it's like. Right. So even in Russia, Ukraine, how many times you see people that put little Ukraine flags on their Twitter page, or how many people, you know, they it becomes a show in itself. How much of this is really genuine, and how much of it is just, you know, look at me, I'm, on, you know, what they call virtue signaling. Look at me, yep. I'm on the right side, and you know, you aren't doing crap for Russia, Ukraine by putting a little <laughs> flag on your. T- you want to do something, to help out. You know, there's lots of ways you can help. Russia sure. just Look at me, you know, sort of pandering to the public opinion so i don't know that's a uh, postman makes you you know if you read when you read postman you can get pretty pessimistic about this stuff <laughs> right <laughs> he knows it too because he's he's always you know critiquing and he doesn't necessarily have solutions he tries hard at the end of the book to kind of have, have some solutions to
0: this um, one, one of the things that i liked <clears throat> which uh which seems to go a little bit begging Nowadays, when you read, you know, sort of how-to books or uh, nonfiction type, um, you know, twelve steps to this or or what have right. you, um, yeah. they're they're heavy on prescribed solutions, but not necessarily on asking questions. And ah. uh, one of the things I think that Postman did, at least in <clears throat> in this uh, one of the interviews that I saw. Uh, you know, the interviewer kind of tasked him with like, okay, well, you, you seem to diagnose a pretty good problem here, but w- what have you got? To, uh, and he came up with a, a series of questions. And and I thought it was, it was very Socratic of him where he sort of sat back and said, well, I think for a start, we need to be sensitive to the kinds of questions that these new technologies ask of us. For example, who benefits from this particular medium, this new medium of, of uh, communication? For example, is it right. the community? Is it society as a, whole, as a whole? Is it a small group of people who are, <clears throat> excuse me, who are, who are the owners? Um, what problem does this technology solve? Uh, is another question that he had, and he used the example where uh, he had just been to buy. And this will date the. Uh, the interview a little bit, but a brand new Honda Accord when he right, bought right. it and bought it in 95. And he said, uh, the, uh, the salesperson there at the, at the car yard, um, was upselling him to cruise control. <laughs> I remember and this he, And he asked, I remember well, "This interview. Yeah. <laughs> what, so what, uh, what problem does, uh, does cruise control address? <laughs> and the salesman was like, I've never had that asked uh, to me before, but, um, I guess the problem is, uh, just keeping your foot on the gas. <laughs> of, of course, Postman's response was, well, I've been driving for whatever, 45 years now, and that hasn't presented itself as a problem thus far. So anyway, it's just, just the framework. Yes, that, that's of one asking of his questions. very memorable bits. I remember that interview because I remember that exact example. And I often
1: yeah. think about that. Like when I get a new technology, oh, what's the, what solutions does this solve? Exactly. Uh, what problem does it solve? And it's like you almost read the book because the way he ends uh amusing ourselves that is with a whole series of questions. I mean, again, because he's, you know, but he says, there's a good reason for that. In the end, I like this line where he says, um, um, to ask the question is to break the spell. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, you kind of get hypnotized by this new medium or new technologies. But if you just, just ask the question immediately, you know, you are less under that influence. And at least you're thinking about, different ways that it's impacting yourself and what you can say, what other people are saying, why they're saying it, like you say, who benefits there's a lot of questions you can ask and it diffuses it a little. It's influence. Mm, yeah, it's the same thing. Kind of if you an... see a persuasive piece of advertising, you know what's going on, you know, right. they're trying to make you sell. I want you to buy something. And you can, just knowing that helps break the spell a little bit, right? Not always yeah, because sure. sometimes things are so subconsciously influential. Um, you can't really do anything about it. I, I've noticed that at least with myself sometimes too, you know, you're like, damn it. You know, they, they put, they planted this idea in your head <laughs> almost like I want to not see certain advertising. I just don't even want to see it because it's like magic and it like pushes little sub- buttons in your subconscious. Um, so yeah. I, yeah. Uh, that's your best route of resistance is to ask the questions.
0: Yeah. It's a kind of, um, so what do you think of the emperor's new clothes? Uh, yeah, yeah. Question. Well, actually, now that now that you mention it, he does look a little naked over there.
1: he does. So you know, this book, uh, the postman books are really easy to read. And this book is like, you know, is it 200 pages long? It's 160 pages, and uh, all of his books are like that. They're short. They're like sub 200, and they're very easy to read quotable, witty, mm-hmm. and they're only dated by these examples like you said, you know, he'll make references to things going on in Nicaragua or President Reagan, but if you didn't have those examples it would be it's really applicable. And he is a really good uh, kind of translator for Marshall McLuhan because he was really influenced by McLuhan. And McLuhan stuff is much more difficult and harder to read. I mean, I have this one here at Marshall McLuhan Understanding Media which is uh, a a classic. I mean, this this book came out, I think in the sixties. So, but a lot of the ideas uh, postman has come out of McLuhan and this book is big fat book and a dense book. But if you wanted to go into where, where this stuff came from, you would, uh, you could go to McLuhan and there's one part in here, for example, uh, because postman's big on this too. Like I mentioned, he's big into the, the medium and thinking about, well, what. what its effects are and really kind of what its purpose is. You know, the old Greek word, like teleology, what's the, it has an almost inbuilt purpose, even though you may not know it. And I I know McLuhan has this one chapter where he talks about um, how we're all asleep and we don't, we don't necessarily think about what we're saying. Like, for example, uh, he's responding to a general who says that quote, we're too prone to make technological instruments to scapegoats for the sins of those who wield them, unquote. And Marshall McLuhan is saying, that's ridiculous. And at first, I remember when I read that quote, I was like, makes sense to me, right? You know, it's not uh-huh. the technology, it's how people use it. And McLuhan saying, no, that's ridiculous. He goes, let let me consider this. Suppose we were to say apple pie in itself is neither good or bad. It's the way it's used that determines its value. Or the smallpox virus is in itself neither good or bad. It's the way it's used that determines its value. Or again, firearms are in themselves neither good or bad. It's the way they're used that determines its value. That is, if the slugs reach the right people, firearms are good. <laughs> if TV tube fires the right ammunition at the right people, it is good. I am not being perverse, he says. <laughs> so, I love that kind of style, you know, because he makes you think. He makes you think about stuff. And uh, that's why I he think goes. it's a great book.
0: He goes all the way back to... Uh to the agrarian revolution and the and the the oh, yeah. the the, uh, the advent of the written word and then uh, you know all the way through to I, I guess Postman was probably influenced right. by right what do you call the um, his
1: idea of the reading evil. public for example yeah yeah uh, well, what was the great the trivium he's uh, 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 McLuhan's big on that like okay. uh, kind of the basic building blocks of knowledge yeah and he was a big fan of James Joyce uh and uh yeah, the ancient Greeks and so uh yeah he's fun he's challenging to read but I think uh you know I took me t- like two months to get through that book and
0: I would just read a little bit every day <laughs> mm-hmm. but lots of thoughtful stuff in there it's uh th- that's interesting it brings up another uh point as well and as a as a card carrying Joyce head who's about to head off to Dublin for the centennial uh bloom's day celebration this june That's why 16th. I it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Write me if you're going to be there and we'll we'll grab a beer with the other freaks and geeks uh do, doing the doing the the bloom walk. Um is this idea of attention span and you mentioned this uh you know McLuhan's dense and uh rewarding book if you can put a couple of months into it and obviously Ulysses is is notoriously uh, you know, a century on, and we're still sort of unpacking all the different layers there. I'm I'm wondering to go back to Postman's questioning the nature of the medium itself, as opposed to just the information that it's delivering. How these new mediums, how you think these new mediums have affected the both the individual and society in general's attention span, in uh, oh, yeah. you know how much we can pay. Attention to—I mean—we have a look at these these news cycles. They seem to just be getting increasingly shorter. Where you need to, as you say, have an opinion on—you know—the history of Eastern European geopolitics. One week you need to be—you know—a a vaccinologist. The next week yeah. you need to be a critical race theorist. The next week That's and you right. need to know all these things. I mean, how? How is that? Uh, how are, are these yes. new mediums affecting our ability to be modern polymaths? Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, society in
1: general, we we become very impatient people with what we read. I mean, there's that little acronym people throw around, you know, TLDR, too long didn't read. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, that's that's sad to me. You know, people put that out, you know, and they're like put it out there like they're smart or being witty somehow, but you know, summarizing some longer argument in a soundbite. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I I a lot I you know, a lot of the books in my library, you're not going to find the quick you know New York Times bestseller. A lot of these books they take time to get through, but that's the rewarding rewarding part of it is to spend a couple of months with a with one book, uh and an author an idea and going through it. I mean, it seems like that's really becoming something that fewer and fewer people are interested in, right? I mean, like you say, it's the death of long-form journalism is another thing, area where you see that. Uh, everything has to be compressed and served up so somebody can get it in 30 seconds or less and,
0: and be done. Yeah. Even I I kind of think about this with regards to just the realm of fiction uh, in general. It seems to me, I don't maybe have a, a different uh, experience no. here, but pretty much all, and it seems to be go very along. This would be incredibly unpopular to say, but it seems to go very much along uh, gender lines where guys tend to read, you know, all the guys that I know uh, tend to read nonfiction and completely eschew fiction, have just zero patience for it, uh, you know, fall asleep at page three. And <laughs> it seems to be only uh, women, at least that I speak to, who have any patience for fiction. And maybe that's just they have different types of patience or different types yeah. of <laughs> tolerance levels. Do you yeah. find that as well? It's kind of a weird observation, but yeah i mean one one of the things i've observed too is that a lot
1: of the um, a lot of new books that come out especially, I don't know, just they're more topical or about investing and they're not mostly nonfiction fiction They all tend to be around 200 pages. That's almost like the publishers have drawn a line. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's 200 pages, like substantial enough where you can still sell it as a book between two hard covers, <laughs> but it's not going to like, you know, put off anybody to, to show them this, you know, every once in a while there are exceptions, right. And they become noteworthy in themselves. I remember when Piketty's david book, foster wallace episode? had infinite Je- oh, yeah. infinite jest remember that was a brick yeah and uh you know david graber's debt book was another big fat one that became a best so, so there are exceptions but uh, in general a lot of these books are pretty
0: thin yeah i wonder um, how many people would i wonder how many of those big classic tomes you yeah. know if uh, if dostoevsky or uh yeah. or I don't know, Thomas Mann uh, rocked yeah. up with Budden Brooks yeah. to the publisher. Be like,
1: Kant comes in with critique yeah.
0: of reason. Here you go. You know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like, you've got t- to, uh, yeah, you're going to have we'll to break that t- up yeah. in a series of 10. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're, we're, how about we do a Netflix special and then, uh, right. you know, people can binge it over the next. So do you, but there's one think, other thing you mentioned that I want to get, get to before yeah. I forget
1: was you said about, uh, you know, you have to feel like you have an opinion about everything. And one week you're a vaccinologist mm-hmm. and next week you're an expert on Ukraine foreign policy. I mean, that's classic. Um, but that that reminded me of one of Postman's solutions. and It's not in any of the books we've discussed. There's another book called how to, I think it's called how to watch the news or something like that. But in the end, he gives like 10 things. And one of them is try to reduce the number of opinions you have by a third. Oh, so, it's just an interesting exercise to go through, Um, you know, try it yourself just for like a week, try to, instead of when you see some story or some idea, try not to have an opinion about it Just say, you know, I don't Mm -hmm. know. (laughs) It's it's interesting. It's almost a little liberating because every time you take an opinion, it's almost like you're staking some ground and making a commitment because then people are more reluctant to change their opinions. Uh, So if you try to withhold your opinion as long as possible uh, and limit the number of opinions you have,
0: it's interesting, psychological effect. I, I yeah, would just trying it out. I could see how that could have a, a cascading effect as well in an increasingly kind of uh, bifurcated society where if you voice a particular opinion on one issue, it almost hems you in with regards to a whole litany of other issues that might have absolutely nothing to do with the original issue at hand. Absolutely. I mean, it, Things that are completely independent, like oh, yeah. you, you you believe in global warming? Okay, you have to wear masks when during a pandemic outside playing golf yeah. on the, you know whatever. just things that have nothing to do with one another. But yeah, you have exactly. to be team like, red. Team you believe blue. in climate warming? Well, Trump was a good
1: president. What do you mean? <laughs> that's related. You know, <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> everything's politicized or whatever. That's another yeah. reason why to resist labels. Why I, I like to you know that's another exercise is just kind of resist labeling yourself, resist taking on any kind of label. Mm-hmm. Uh, because again, that hems you in if suddenly you think of yourself as a X and you, there's some internal pressure to kind of believe everything that an X believes, you know, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and it makes you take sides just based on the label rather
0: than reasoning your way through the issues. So do you think that there's a, a kind of, uh, a takeaway or some kind of applicable, um, lesson to be, to be drawn as an investor and i mean yeah. that in in definitely you know, I mean, with multiple senses if if you're the one guy who's reading you know who's going to sit through and re- and read the you know um the big dense tomes and not just kind yeah. of skim the uh skim mm-hmm. the executive summary do, does that give you an edge or you know yeah i think there's always an edge for the patient
1: who are willing to to, to read the footnotes as the old saying goes, but um, it's tough because if everyone else thinks the other way in the short term, you can look pretty dumb and you can look pretty dumb for a while. I mean, it could go on for months or you might, you may not get validation for a year, several years. So it only requires patience to go through that, but also patience to then kind of suffer when things aren't going your way for a while. Uh, I see it all the time, you know, some report will come out on some company and I'll know that it's sensationalist and not particularly true in certain areas, but it'll still, you know, knock the stock down for 10 or 15% and then it may not recover for months, you know, until it kind of cycles through. Um, and for those of us who, you know, are professional investors and live on reported returns, it can be difficult, you know, <laughs> or, you know well, you know, just hang on, it's coming, you know, <laughs> um, right. And I guess it must the other, the other ways, way. Go on. Yeah other ways helps too. Like I was talking about labels. I mean, um, people will label certain companies in certain ways because they want you to think about it in a certain way. But, uh, you know, if you get past the label, so for example, you know, I don't know, let's take a random example. People who are big on Tesla will want you to think of Tesla as a, technology company in some way or as a battery company where people who are not so enamored with tesla focus and say well no it's a car company and they look at it through that lens and so you come through very difficult different points of view depending on what sort of label you adopt and that
0: happens all the time as well and i guess it must go the other way as well when uh, you know Something uh, flashes across the news, a new technology, and something uh, shoots to the moon, and, and you might be sitting there saying, "Actually, this thing it doesn't have any earnings. It's not got yeah. no. It's got no growth. Right. It's got no you know pathway to uh, to profitability. Yes. But you're watching yeah. a mania That's unfold. That's probably actually more common because uh, you know I've been in all the markets for like
1: close to 30 years. And I've seen that happen many times to me where I'll be sitting and, and these companies will be flying and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I won't be involved in any of them, but it takes time. And then they unravel. So you see like companies like Carvana didn't make any money, but, you know, has a concept that got people excited and went to the moon and now it's starting to finally, you know, come apart. Or there's, there's a lot of other businesses like that that don't make any money. Uh, but they had a concept And what I've seen people do, and particularly uh particular younger investors will do this, younger by me, I mean younger than me. (laughs) (laughs) They'll focus on things like they'll talk about unit economics. So they'll say, I don't know. Uh you know, company, I don't want to use too many specific name companies, but let's say company X, you know, they sell something and the unit economics of what they sell is, you know, really compelling. But the company overall is still not making any money because the the operating expenses and everything below that line is is high and, and continues to grow. But they say, oh, when it, when it scales, you know, and then they do these projections based on unit economics. And what happens a lot is those businesses never get to that scale. So they continue to grow, but the operating expenses continue to grow right along mm. with it. And they never yeah. quite, quite get there. And so I actually, uh, you know, I have this just sort of basic rule that, uh, you know, I want companies to make a gap profit, a, co- a profit according to generally ac- accepted accounting principles if you just have mm-hmm. that filter alone, you know, you, you, you would avoid a lot of the trouble over the last six to nine months, uh, where these companies have fallen 70, 80, 90%, they didn't make any money, but they were for a little while, they were, they were darlings. Yeah. It's
0: interesting. I spoke to our mutual friend, uh, Mr. Eric Fry last week. And, uh, I asked him if there was, uh, you know, a couple of key takeaways that, uh, that, that he could give to, uh, to our listeners, you know, with regards to investing in, you know, when you're getting all this kind of noise to talk again about the Postman uh, idea of this saturation, this glut of information, how to kind of cut through that noise and just a couple of, you know, basic starting filters that uh, investors can use. And he said, um, you know, at the margin, you can cut out a lot of noise by just looking at earnings. It, yeah. uh, is a company growing earnings, and he said, "This sounds kind of it sounds almost facile, but it's it, it you does. know it's it's ignored by a lot of people because they they focus on crafty accounting, uh, and Eric referred to it as sort of accounting wizardry, where well, it's a adju- it's earnings, but it's adjusted for this or you know all these other adjustments that the ac- accounting yeah. department makes that can hide a lot of uh, a lot of a company's uh, lack of earnings or lack of earnings growth." And then uh, one of your favorite indicators, of course, was insider buying or selling, and at the margin, you know, you're not going to be right all the time. But those two those two things can uh, can help cut out a lot of the informational the glut of information that is uh, maybe not as worthwhile as uh, as others would have one believe. Yeah, I would say
1: overwhelmingly for most investors, probably almost everyone who's listening to us, just following the companies that make a profit. Just mm-hmm. that filter alone you know cuts out a lot of a lot of money. now we have to be fair you're going to miss sometimes you know a great business I mean Amazon didn't report a, a gap profit for quite a while, right so you're going to have mm-hmm. to every every filter I wrote a blog post about this not too long ago that uh you know every filter you create is going to have fish slip through the net I mean that's the nature of it you're not going to catch everything but the idea of having a filter as an investor is to cut down on that on that universe because they if you're looking globally, as I do, there's tens, thousands of security. So you have to find some way to look at that world. And for me, yeah, the profit. The other way I do it is, you know, inside ownership that cuts out a lot of stuff. You know, I'm only mm-hmm. investing in companies where there's a family or there's sort a CEO or somebody owns a decent slug of stock. Uh, the other thing that you always use is, is balance sheet, just looking at you know anything that's got a lot of debt out. So if you just kind of sift by that, you know, Mm -hmm. suddenly the stuff that falls through is, you know, worth taking a look at usually. And doesn't mean, of course, that there isn't some debt fueled company that has no insider ownership. That's going to be a 10 bagger. Of course, I'm going to miss that. Uh, But that's the nature of of
0: filters. And I guess it kind of uh, it imposes whether you're looking at information just in general from the media. It could be political information or. Entertainment informa- information or whatever the news cycle is, or I- information that informs your investing, yeah. if you employ some of these um, some of these tools, then it can impose a lot of self-discipline on you uh when you're yes. just focused on a on a smaller universe, as you say. It
1: does. And then the other question I always you know, I take a very hard pragmatic approach when it comes to trying to sift through news and economic reports, is I always ask myself, well, what what would be the consequence? Of taking a belief here, either either way, would it matter?
0: Mm. And so should I kind spend like a From the outset, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was amazing. Should I spend a lot of time figuring out the Russia-Ukraine thing? What practical difference would it make to me to take one side or the other, mm-hmm. or you know, or just uh, you know, lots of political questions are that way. I mean, and, and it helps you, you know kind of conserve your mental energy and your focus there's another saying i like where it's, i don't know who first said it but it's it's you are what you pay attention to so Ooh, you think about that month. you are what you pay attention to so if you pay attention to a lot of this trivial nonsense all the time that's who you are that's who you become do you want to be that <laughs> you know, So, you know feed your mind good stuff you know pay attention to things that have some consequence and
0: matter yeah, I think uh, v- virtue is the habits that we, that we undertake every day. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I do, it, it can be a bit of a spiral. I mean, I, I think we've probably all, uh, listeners included, been around people who are so kind of caught up in the whirlwind of, uh, you know, Postman's information glut and yeah. this uh, rapidly constricting news cycle that it's pretty easy to get yourself overheated. I mean, just from yeah. like a mental health standpoint, it's pretty easy to get yourself overheated on things that, well, you know, are you going to become matter. an expert in this in the next day or week? Shouldn't you focus on things that are, you know, that old Vol- Voltaire quote of tending your own garden? garden I and mean, we have, yes. we, we have other There's things. There's a lot to of wisdom about. like that.
1: Gert is about, you know, sweeping your own sweeping doorstep. Your own doorstep. <laughs> yep, there you go. <laughs> Wise people. But it gets to what yeah. your point, it gets to the title of his book, right? Musing ourselves to death. So much of this is, really entertainment i mean what we call news is entertainment it's packaged that way it's meant to elicit a reaction mm-hmm. and if you allow yourself you're just kind of letting them kind of tug and control you um so yeah i think that's that's a good message out of that
0: uh and so what do you think of just sort of changing text slightly what do you think of uh twitter as as a tool I mean, we've we've talked about the kind of the drawbacks and and the yeah. potential detrimental effects. Uh, I know a lot of people who who see it as a tool to be able to cut through other information because they're able to focus on a f- you know maybe a few investors that they yeah. that they like and they follow and they can get uh, you know kind of real time. Uh, yeah, I have a love, know, information love hate or, relationship with Twitter really because uh,
1: yeah. on the one hand, uh, you know, I've met some interesting people through Twitter. Yeah. Uh, that has been valuable. You know, there's been research that has been exchanged over Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's been valuable. You know, I've got, I don't know, over 30,000 followers. Um, so it's brought, it's brought in from a business perspective. It brings attention. I know mm-hmm. uh, at least a couple of investors have found me through Twitter. So it's not, you know, of no value, but then I am very mindful of the downside too. So there are ways that I manage it. You know, uh, I'm only on it for certain times. So I'll go and try and tweet some things. Um, I like to joke with my friends and say, my Twitter account is a one-way feed. You know, I put stuff out, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna engage anybody. You know, if I'm not gonna, right. don't be offended if I don't see your tweet, I don't favorite <laughs> you and retweet you. I don't do it for anybody. You know, I don't right. favorite and tweet. I have lots of people I follow. It seems almost like a courtesy. You know, they follow you. Okay, I'll follow you, you know, but I don't really, uh, I don't get into it that much because it's an enormous time sink otherwise. Right. Uh, and you find yourself just, you know, I've had this early on when I was on Twitter, you could just, you know, you're there for 45 minutes and then you're done. You're like, well, what did I do? It's like junk food for the brain. You know, it's like, yeah, just what locality. did I really get out of it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I try to manage it, you know, I limit myself. Uh, and the other things I've kind of learned too, and this was earlier on, I used to talk much more about positions, but then I found that was a negative to do that. Uh, because then people start to think of you as the guy for that position and they want to come and ask you every, everything, you know, every twist and turn, you're, you're kind of got to be the guy who narrates it for people. Right. And again, it may affect me in ways I don't really appreciate. It may force me to dig in on a name that, you know, otherwise if I, all these people didn't know I owned it, maybe I'd be gone, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I've limited that as well. I, I've, I do, I have discussed some names at times, but I don't give people the, you know, running commentary of what I'm doing
0: or any of that anymore. Um, so there are ways to manage it, but yeah. If they run the, want, want the running commentary of what you're doing, they can follow your blog. And I'll give you a plug, Chris, at WoodlockHouseFamilyCapital.com uh, for you our go, listeners you. who want to- Google that and you'll, you'll find it. I well, run an occasional what's... blog and, and then my Twitter, which I
1: occasionally. The other annoying thing about Twitter is I keep <laughs> getting these imposter accounts.
0: Oh, so really? It's crazy. What you, do you have the real Chris Mayer or something like that? What's no, your handle I, so I people I tried can avoid to Twitter, those?
1: I, I tried ones. to get verified a couple of times and they keep rejecting me. I think I'm like just not quite famous enough or something. Oh, like. okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we'll, 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 but, but
1: we'll give you- It's terrible because people will come up with a you know Twitter page. that looks exactly like mine, except it'll be like, the, instead of my handle is Chris W Mayer, they'll change it by some minor way. You know, it'll be Chris I or they have two I's in it or an X or something like that. But they make the page otherwise look exactly like mine, you know, and they tweet the same thing and then they use it to sell their some garbage. Uh, Most of the time well, I've caught them pretty early and they don't have very many followers, but there was one that I just found uh, people were telling me about. It has as many, has more followers than my real account. It's
0: pretty embarrassing. Wow. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, maybe this, maybe this, uh, you'll get the, the fatal conceits podcast bump and that will get you up to blue there check status. <laughs>
1: That's it. I need that blue check mark. I mean, there are people who, uh, other investors I know they have blue check marks and they're not particularly any more famous than I am. I mean, within investing they're known,
0: but they're not really that well known outside that world. And they have blue check marks, so I don't know what they did. <laughs> well, so we we'll probably have a whole other discussion on just the uh, you know the elitism that goes on there with go. um, the new communication right. technology platforms. But uh, one you're talking about Twitter being a kind of one way. Uh, one-way relationship for you then and it reminded me of one quote of postman's which I wanted to get in and this is another one of the questions that he uh that he kind of routinely asks in order to frame the discussion you see it's kind of constantly got going on in his own head and it's yeah. uh as simple as am i using this technology or is it using me I think that's a re- that kind of cuts to the heart of, uh, of like the matter that that's really yeah. good that's really really good. All right, yeah. The, uh, the irony is, I'll put that out on Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a one-way relationship. There so, you go. Okay. <laughs> All right, Chris, that's probably a, a pretty good place to to leave it All for right. this uh, for this one, mate. Thank you, as always, yeah. for sharing your insights. You've sure. recommended so many good books to me over the years, and uh, well, that's good. I'm glad you li- you'll, you'll like you like Postman, and clearly, you've read quite a bit of stuff
1: because you were. It's like spot on the whole time. <laughs> I mean
0: so oh, yeah. I'll put a link to uh to a few of his books underneath because we can uh yeah amusing help. ourselves uh, the that listeners to get a, some as well.
1: Another one, Technop Technopoly, I think it is. Those are the two that I, I would really recommend.
0: Very good. And then after that, you can find your way to his other books as you're interested in different topics. But perfect. Chris Mayer, right. Woodlock House Family Capital Fund. Check it out. And Chris W. Mayer, don't be Taken in by the imposters <laughs> on Twitter. And uh, for our listeners, please head over to our Substack, which is at Bonner Private Research. where you can find plenty more material, including conversations just like this one. That's all. Catch you next week.